I bet people have looked at maps more in the last 18 months for new reasons than ever before. I mean, there were times where we wouldn't even go to a, a different county because they were a different color of red than, than we were. I mean, so bizarre. And then, and then to think about us as contributors to the map, every time someone took a COVID test and was negative or took one and was positive or uh, was admitted to the hospital or got a vaccine, we, we, we contribute this data to this thing. So in the future, what, you know, what can we substitute for COVID in that map? Like, could we substitute happiness or um, grief or other sorts of psychological um, data that where the map could be more, more useful than just trying to avoid a virus? Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's really interesting to me. That was artist Stuart Hyatt, whose work uses sound to understand our relationship with the natural world. Also joining this conversation are artists Dan Mills and Christina Seely. Dan uses maps in paintings and collages as a way to explore ideas of historic and current events, including issues like colonialism. Christina uses photography to address the complexities of both built and natural global systems. All of their work, Stuart, Dan, and Christina, is featured in the Anchorage Museum's exhibit, Counter Cartographies, Living the Land, which challenges our traditional understanding of what a map is. Often maps are viewed as objective and above reproach, but maps, just like any piece of art, come with the bias of their makers. They can be made with the intent of acquiring land and resources, as has historically been the case. So it's important to consider how they affect our perspective and understanding of land and our place in the world. It's also important to consider ways we can reimagine the traditional idea of mapping, because an image can't always document or express the reality of a place. So here they are, Stuart Hyatt, Christina Seely, and Dan Mills. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. Let's start off with introductions. Um, Dan, if you want to go first. Hi, I'm Dan Mills, uh, an artist uh, who is, uh, lives in Maine. And I make uh, art that uh, uses the space of maps to investigate uh, visual information and data about our world currently or historically that has relevance to our world today. I'm Christina Seely, and I'm an artist that creates work that deals with our entanglements with global systems, both natural and man-made, in re relationship to the climate crisis. And I've worked for about 10 years on the, the edge of things in the Arctic and in the tropics as well, alongside climate scientists. Um, and I work in a range of media, so photographic media um, predominantly, but now also in video and sound and maps are, and the sort of global understanding of the world is a really important part of my practice. Yeah, hi, I'm Stuart Hyatt. I'm an artist and a musician, 
And I also work with scientists on my projects. Uh, they're very interdisciplinary and collaborative. And because I'm c coming at it from the perspective of a musician, I typically use sound and listening as a way of understanding and interpreting our space in the world. And so my practice is focused uh, maybe less on the visual and more on the, the audible and the sonic aspects of our environment. Mm -hmm. Something I think about when I think about maps is how they've historically changed or influenced the way we think about land and our relationship to it. For example, how mapping the oceans changed world trade and how gerrymandering influences elections. When you think about the influence of maps, what do you think about? Uh, this is uh, Dan here. Um, oftentimes what intrigues me is, is the, um, the bias. So, so often uh, maps have a look of being objective, but historically they have usually been commissioned by somebody who has a perspective and is interested in land they don't have, people they don't have, uh, claiming, etc. So those things interest me a great deal. I can speak to that a little bit in, in um, from a slightly different direction. I, I tend to use maps in my work to, to help situate a viewer in relationship to the whole of the planet in a way. So, um, and, and I'm also very interested in those kinds of biases that, that um, Dan's mentioning. But in, in some ways, um, this, this sort of deep step back that can happen from understanding the edges of, of even just land formation can can be this useful tool also to in, in, in at, like simultaneously to help us sort of position ourselves in relationship to a whole so it's like mm -hmm. a slightly different lens on that well this is Stuart. my my answer is really a straightforward one from childhood i grew up with a world map on my living room wall and i think it's it's based on the Mercator projection, which, and I could be wrong, but it's basically uh, flattening a sphere onto a rectangular surface. So in my tiny little mind, Antarctica was like three times the size of Africa and Greenland was twice the size of, of North America. And that's simply just the, the stretching of the geometry. So just a very simple uh, misreading of the world in my small mind that it took, I don't know, two decades to realize that that was not the case. I wonder, um, have we gotten any better about accurate representations? You know, you used Antarctica as an example. Oh, I think that certainly the technology, obviously first through Google Earth and Google Maps is just complete paradigm shift from the National Geographic Atlas that I grew up with. Um, mm -hmm. or even using uh, phone apps rather than paper maps, for better or for worse, um, I think positions us as the protagonist in our own map rather than the, um, the bird's eye view, you know, surveyor of a map, so to speak. So I think, and that gets into really fun stuff like augmented reality and virtual reality where, where, we, uh, where we can navigate the map as a first-person author agent rather than um, just looking at someone else's 
rendering of space. Mm -hmm. And I'd bring into the, that uh, evolution of a kind of science perspective that NASA allowed early on, even before this Google technology taken hold in, in the public. Um, so the NASA map of the world at night from even 2002 way back also shows us as a protagonist, as you see through man-made light, um, where impact is is actually happening through this sort of um, bird's eye view. But then to, to come into now, we have this, this scaling that's possible, um, as you mentioned, where we can kind of climb into our own experience and feel like we're inside of the map and then move in different directions to this sort of micro-macro relationship to place and location and self, which is... Um, really deeply change the way we understand ourselves as a global culture also and um, how we relate to each other. And so is it is it accurate to say that these NASA maps revolutionize the way we view the world and even the way we see ourselves and understand our own experiences? Possibly, yes. I mean, I think alongside even um, cellular mapping too to understand that we're made up of tiny tiny cells as as mm -hmm. well as be able to move through you know through science and then through scientific imaging and then through you know coming um out at such a far uh from such a far distance looking back at you know sort of uh spaceship earth um from those early photographs of the earth from right from space in the 60s and 70s that really actually changed the um, the way we understand ourselves as a global community that then sparked the first environmental um, you know revolution i don't know what the others think about it but it feels like a key thing to circle around now even as we um COVID has brought into play that we are now collectively going through something for the first time like cognitively understanding that everyone's going through something collectively as a planet is, is deeply profound in a way that maybe these these maps um, kind of prompted the, the beginning of that sensibility of kind of understanding ourselves as one. Mm -hmm. uh, Christina, um, yeah, that what's interesting to me is is thinking from that macro micro because we are globally dealing with something that is internal that we can't see and the idea of uh, the technology that has evolved in recent decades that allows us to see and really understand things that are bigger than the eye can see and also things that are uh, smaller than the eye can see. And, you know, uh, the pandemic and COVID is, is, a, is an example of both of those when you think about it. Um, it's something we, that we understand from visualization of um, molecular information, but in a global way with global impact. Have any of you seen that, uh, that film by Charles and Ray Ames, Powers of 10? Yes. I yeah, love that. that. Really I love that piece. Oh, it was so ahead of its time. Um, I don't know when it was made, but certainly way pre, pre um, satellite imaging. But it, if you're not familiar with it, people listening, it's a, it's a great way to learn, power, you know, powers of 10. And so they start with a square meter in ah, Chicago, I think, uh, along the lake shore. Right. And then it zooms out to 10 square meters, 
and then 100 square meters. So you, you've got now the whole uh, park with trees and then uh, 1,000 square meters where you can see part of Lake Michigan and, and this, the high rises and then 10,000 square meters. So you're zooming up, you can see the Great Lakes and on and on and on until you're into the Milky Way galaxy and part of the entire universe at who knows, a, a trillion square meters. And then the film reverses and goes back down to that one square meter and then goes in. So then you've got uh, a centimeter, a square millimeter, a square micromillimeter, and it goes inside, um, I think inside the body and inside atomic structures. Uh, and that was just so, so moving to me when I saw it probably in my late teens. Uh, and I think laid the groundwork for this um, outer inner dialogue. Yeah, that that um, film also had a profound impact on me and has stayed with me over many projects, actually. I love that you're bringing it in, in here, too. So it looks like that film came out in 1968. And I wonder, you know, this might take us a few decades back, but how do you think that that representation of perspective added or affected the current understanding of our experience? I would say um, the stitching together of the micro to the macro in that particular film was incredibly helpful to relate the stages of scale. So cognitively you can kind of understand there, there's, there is a relationship between something that's cellular and, and beyond our capabilities that's so small, but then, and then also, you, you know, we're taken way out into the galaxy and Earth becomes tiny within, you know, the, the perspective from, from this extreme macro scale. So I think somehow there's like a, that particular visualization allows a, a situating of this, of the human scale within these um yeah with just within this like sense of time and space that's that's obviously complex but it almost brings in where our the edge of our comprehension can falls off right mm -hmm. and I, and i think that that's incredibly useful right so to really understand the limits of our capabilities of understanding scale can be very useful and when we're thinking to bring it back to mapping that visual comprehension of scale that can connect to, to change and how we react to our environment and our communities and people and, and get, you know, gets us into politics and the environment and all kinds of things. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it, it feels like a powerful tool. You know, the way that we're talking about that power of 10 video reminds me of when Carl Sagan called the earth a pale blue dot, you know, it, it, it is zooming back and showing us this perspective of ourselves that almost gets us out of our own little worlds, our own little echo chambers. Well, yeah, when you get to exceedingly small or large numbers, actual descriptions fail the imagination. And so you need oftentimes some sort of model or metaphor Mm -hmm. Another example from childhood, I guess I'm just going to talk about things from my childhood here, maps and uh, <laughs> powers of 10. But also there was this, uh, there was this playground at a school that had uh, an attempt at like a, a scale uh, model of the solar system. 
and I'm going to be way off on the distances here, but the sun was like in the corner of the, uh, of the playground. And so, and it was like the size of like a grapefruit. And then you walk out like 30 feet to Mercury. Then you walk like another hundred feet to Venus. And then on the edge of the, of the, of the playground was earth. And then there was a little caption saying, drive a hundred miles and you get to Jupiter and then drive a thousand miles and you get to Pluto. Mm -hmm. Um, back when Pluto was a planet and, and that was just like mind exploding, um, thinking that, oh, even at scale, you've got a, if the sun were the size of a grapefruit, you have to drive a thousand miles to get to, to the next planet. It was just crazy. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that, um, you each are talking about is, is really how, um, this way of using mapping in various ways to understand our world is so, uh, it, it does so much to the imagination, right? I mean, to have, uh, you know, we're talking about as, as a child, having that experience and having that sort of mind blowing recognition of what distance really is, um, mm -hmm. in a way that relates to your world, uh, your life experience when talking about something like the solar system is really, uh, you know, really something I, you know, it's funny. I too grew up in, um, we, we, uh, in the breakfast room, um, maps were pieced together of the, uh, Adirondack forest park where, um, I spent a lot of time, um, as a boy and, um, I, you know, sit there eating my cereal and look at this, this wall of places that I knew and eventually realizing that, um, there was so little in parts of it that there may have been a little rectangle representing a lean-to that I had uh, camped in while canoeing down this particular river or stream, um, which was, you know, somehow um, there was something about that that imaginative experience, you know, taking something as dry and basic as, as a um, two-dimensional map and having it conjure up things in your imagination was really kind of revelatory as a, as a boy. Mm -hmm. Christina, I wonder, um, what kinds of maps or map related experiences did you grow up with? I'm trying to think back. I, I love the question about childhood because it feels like, um, and bringing in child, just the, the childhood memories, because it feels like that space also that Dan, you're also bringing in of kind of wonder and, and, um, you know, just where we start to situate our curiosity and exploration or sense of exploration. And I, I don't know. I, my parents are both um, tra travelers and brought uh, just traveling in early. And my father's a language teacher and publishes books about learning languages. And so, so other cultures and language were really important and and my my I think my mother too we really we had this huge map we had probably a Mercator map also on the wall um and for me I think the map because of their relationship to their own lives and stories and language um was really rooted in ex these these deep experiences they've had I think I really related places on this map with deep emotional kind of connection to to um, periods of time in their lives and that kind of stuck for me 
So it's a little sort of convoluted as an answer, but um, <laughs> it's I'm sort of I'm processing it almost and answering it right. That but maps were important and really uh, they felt pe- like a playful space of what could be possible or where we might go or what we might learn and. Um, I've all been kind of obsessed with them since I was young. So, and they really have influenced my work, whether the first big project I, I did was called Lux and it was based on that NASA map that I mentioned in 2002 of the world at night. And um, I also remember this, the first time I saw the map of the geology of the United States with no lines, so there are no state lines. And I was kind of obsessed with that map too. It was just about... Um, it was an elevation map too, so sort of understanding the, you know, the mountain ranges and the sort of natural formations and what that meant and how that deeply shifted the understanding of place and what the United States means and what these line, how arbitrary state lines were and you know sort of borders were. Um, so yeah, anyway, so I'm, can, I could talk for days about maps, but yeah, I think um, <laughs> that map has really always stayed with me too. That shift out of of sort of borders and into into what the land is you know underneath what's just there that's just sort of fact you know i think it might be interesting to um answer this this really basic question and that is what is a map because i think that each of you are working with maps in non-traditional ways and i wonder if Maybe each of you could answer it in your own way. I, I'll go first. This is Stuart. And since I work with sound, I've actually created some sound maps in a couple of different cities. Uh, and a sound map is just as simple as it sounds. It's uh, plot, plotting audio on certain points, and it's easy to do with all of these digital mapping tools now. But what I'm trying to do is to not draw lines or regions almost like breadcrumbs and puzzle pieces mm-hmm. so that the person experiencing my sound map gets to put their own map together in their own sequence and order based on what they're experiencing in a non-sequential way. Uh, so uh, my maps are very much uh, jigsaw puzzles that come in a box and then trying to let the viewer slash listener piece that back together um, and also doing so, perhaps to use a loose metaphor, through poetry rather than prose. So short little, short little groupings of words uh, that read more like a poem than a than a piece of prose. Uh, and so, as I guess, as a as a map maker, now uh, I suppose I loosely would consider myself one. Uh, that's how I approach it. I might jump in because Stuart, I was just that out, you know, in Alaska last week to install my work, and I kept walking through your, your, your piece and your uh, exhibition, and every time I walked through, I would grab something new, and I really, I was really moved by the, the, the what you're describing in the that breadcrumb kind of approach, in that. Um, it meant a kind of situating it back into your body and this embodiment of 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 mapping, right? So that it's like born in your own experience and your own body and your own knowings. And uh, that's a, a helpful segue, I think, into the way I'm thinking about mapping, where it's much more abstract. Um, 
And I, I'm really in my newer work and the work that's in the, sh the, the, the museum now, thinking about the subtle body and what does it mean to try to bring a viewer back into their own set of knowings in their bodies um, through and through sound in both of them. But one of the disturbance, the piece that's the newest and partially actually um, uh, recorded right outside of, you know, right on the edge of Anchorage, um, that piece is really about thinking of these jets taking off out of Anchorage Airport. And then I'm also recorded and with uh, Christopher Hedge, who's an audio engineer, um, who's genius at this, helped me with this project. And in this piece, because I'm using uh, the Anchorage and, and Alaska in the work, sort of Alaska is the site of the far north, um, uh, and then Panama, where I'd worked with a group of scientists for a, a number of years, just at a research station there. Uh, I, I had this experiences in both places where the the sound of and this this deep subwoofer sort of style bass that you hear in the installation um, of these these uh, industrialized machines are really disrupting the the natural environment and natural sonic environment there. So. So in the piece you in this new piece here, I'm I'm really trying to draw you into a sense of a connection between these these um, disparate locations, um, but understanding that there's this continuous network happening throughout the whole of the planet. So you understand that obviously if a plane's continuing somewhere else, and so is this uh, these these ships that you're seeing. So um, I think the the way the mapping comes into to the work that uh, that's in the shows at the moment is a little less anchored in a in an actual map on the wall, but is is implied by these locations and then this the the just these traveling um, machines. You know that they they mean they mean they mean you're moving through the world in some way. So mm -hmm. um, and and I think the other piece dis dissonance is is a really is rooted in the body so the the my body and the self in greenland um and the, again there's sort of this this is a longer conversation for another time but about this this sort of understanding of the arctic and and the far north as that's complicated and it, it sort of leaves out a lot of information the way that the general public sort of understands um what the Arctic is and what in it, which is true for a lot of, of the uh, the way we take in the natural world, um, and I think trying to bring the subtle body back in and and the way Stuart sort of talking about um, bringing the the experiencer into their body and and mapping through you know your own knowings is is something that feels increasingly important as we're. In also increasingly disconnected from reality in a lot of ways through technology. So mm -hmm. I maybe we'll stop there. <laughs> talk too long, but yeah. So uh, the question has to do with um, what a map is to us, yes? Um, so in some ways, uh, I, my work, uh, when compared with uh, Christina and Stuart's, and by the way, how great that uh, you were up there, Christina, and saw Stuart's work, I hope, uh, probably uh, earlier next year, I hope to uh, get up to um, see the exhibition. Um, but uh, I, I tend to um, use the space of existing maps to then explore ideas um, uh, by visualizing data in ways that I, I'm not necessarily really sure what 
things are going to look like. And um, I'm using the space of a map. I mean, for example, there's uh, uh, in the exhibition, there's the, one of the larger works is a, about an eight by 12 foot um, map of the world. And it's, it's a based on a mid 20th century map and has all of the um, exaggerations of uh, Northern hemisphere and shrinking of Southern hemisphere and other mm -hmm. kind of human anomalies that um, are so built into the, the, the process of taking a sphere and making it flat. <laughs> um, but, uh, and then use that as a place to, you know, so here there's a, a representation of, in this case, the world, um, which we understand as being rather analytical and objective. And what I uh, aspire to do really is to um, visualize information with a with a, a strong impact that uh, one may respond to more viscerally rather than from the the original place that the map uh, intended, um, you know, more analytical analytically or objectively. So the 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 large work, which is um, so I have a way of uh, naming works. Uh, so that they then don't require a description because the name is a paragraph long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the large work there is uh, current wars and conflicts with bicontinent belligerent and supporter groups marked with black and red circles respectively and asylum seekers internally displaced refugees and stateless marked with a letter for every million and killed marked with a letter for every 250,000. And strategies I take, I suppose, are to use visual symbols and forms that are uh, too large to fit in the spaces they're going to go. So this information about our, you know, the current wars and conflicts in the world spills out of uh, the continents and, and kind of falls to the bottom or the top of this imaginary space of, of, of Earth. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, for me, that's, that's how I use them. I mean, mapping is so, such a wide open thing. I think the interactivity of, um, you know, our technologies of recent decades has, has completely transformed how we can visualize or understand. It's not even visual. Look at Stuart. Uh, um, but, you know, in ways that um, are, are kind of mind boggling. So I don't think there's a, a simple a simple uh, definition. Um, I think at one point it would have been a diagrammatic representation of land or something. And that's, that's so limiting compared to what is possible and what people have been doing in, in recent times. Mm -hmm. Cody, I might just jump in and, and say to Dan with your piece too, which I love, you use the language of this traditional mapping and then, and then the, the, the human, element is really the marks made on top of it too so the sort of understanding of the artist coming in and and sort of piecing apart and deconstructing that that map and um i just to to throw in there just find that really effective and really moving and sort of the spilling over especially the piece you just described that um with these dots that are kind of you know obviously represent something so deep and wildly profound and enormous and then they sort of overtake the whole, you can't even really see that original language of mapping in the first place. So just uh, just find that really effective and such an interesting um, 
way to kind of also bring in the personal or the emotional, but it comes, it, it, it's almost back to the mark of the, of the artist, of the individual that, that's like telling us to look at this differently. What kinds of assumptions do we make through traditional ideas of mapping and recording? Factuality, accuracy, and I think oftentimes you're as likely to find human foibles and biases and things that contradict that, for one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have this memory too on that note of seeing a series of, of early Arctic maps. I think it was in, I was in Svalbard too in this tiny weird gallery way, way, way up in the edge of things. And then I walked into this gallery and they're all unfinished maps of the Arctic and there were these drawings of um, in the corner. I'm sure you guys have seen them. And there may be a few actually in the museum right now in the, the Alaska hallway show um, of mapping. Um, but that show these monsters. They're sort of all of the the animals that were probably up there. And you can tell someone's told someone else what they look like and then they drew them, you know, and in, in, and that really stood out to me that clearly whoever drew the images hadn't had a direct experience with the animal or that would have, the drawing would have been really different. So back to sort of what, it's so almost like that game of telephone when you're a kid, you know, where it gets, everything just gets screwed up by the end. and and then that becomes like quote-unquote fact to whoever in the end is looking at that map right at that time. Uh, this is probably not an answer to your question, but I have a friend named Chris Harzinski who about 10 years ago published a book called From Here to There, a collection of hand-drawn maps. And he actually has this hand-drawn map association uh, that he started. And it was it was perfectly timed as a refutation to these accurate digital maps. And I've done this thing uh, with kids before as, as kind of a workshop where we draw a map, like draw a map from your house to your school or to your friend's house. And the, the markers and distances and landmarks and such that they use is an extraordinary uh, story about what they value mm -hmm. or what their perspective is, whether it's from the school bus or like the back of their parents' car or walking or riding their bike and those sorts of things. Uh, I think if, even if we had adults do the same thing, it would be very telling about how we navigate space. And um, I think that's a, I haven't seen the show yet, but I, I hope there are, there are a lot of hand-drawn uh, scenarios out there. You know, I think that this is, this is a really interesting topic or issue that I have, uh, I, I personally never thought about, you know, the fact that maps are bias because me coming from kind of a layman's perspective, I just assume that when I look at a map, they have been uh, peer reviewed. There are multiple perspectives involved. There are empirical facts involved. So, I mean, it's kind of blowing my mind right now. <laughs> I'd say, another, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> another phenomenon, um, as, as far as peer, peer reviews go, uh, I don't know if you, you all know about these, uh, these paper towns that they would put on maps, uh, and they would do so to trick the other map maker to catch a copyright or to, you know, to catch a, oh, yes. a, a fraud. So they would put a, 
they put a fake town in, in you know, Pennsylvania or something. And then um, if that appeared on another map maker's map, they knew it was a fraud. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, they're called paper towns. Yeah, there's a long history of, of that and also just having some fun with inventing places and sneaking them in just, just for the amusement of it. Um, long ago, before the pandemic, I was in uh, London and uh, um, decided that uh, I would make an appointment at the Royal Geographic Society and look at you know great old maps at one of the the great colonizing uh powers of uh of you know history and um and it was really kind of amazing and what i what i asked was that they pull out the historic maps of you know the air quotes new world or the americas um from all the times when people didn't really know what it looked like yet mm -hmm. So that I could kind of see, uh, really, what I was looking at was what people didn't know, in in the efforts to try to represent something that was still being ex explored and and mapped, and uh, it was really exciting. think that the general population is is more illiterate in understanding maps than say reading a book because i know that i can read a book and recognize a bias pretty immediately whereas i can't look at a map and recognize a bias i don't think hmm. interesting question well um, I was thinking when you were speaking about um, uh, kind of accepting the the objectivity of maps. Um, mm -hmm. If you if you got a map of the Middle East from every country in the Middle East and put them next to each other, would they be the same? Probably not. I'm just guessing, though. Yeah. I would think that. Just just in the course of this conversation and my mind's just going wild, but I would assume that when maps are drawn of the places that people are in, those places may be more detailed 
maybe they seem bigger. They are, um, there's certain fabrications that are involved in that because of the familiarity of the map maker to that area. Yeah, it brings in also what what makes the cut, right? What gets onto a map, right? And and mm-hmm. what's and what's valued, right? So, what's important to make sure is known or found again, um, or maybe not found again, you know? So, um, I had this also this interesting experience again on that this trip I was on in Svalbard. We went to a, f- a friend of mine really wanted to go to a place on the map called Abandoned. It's like literally that you can look it up. It's just called abandoned. And so we went to this like nondescript place um, and be, to, to make some work about that idea too, of just like that this has been a place that something had been abandoned there and it somehow turned into like literally on Google Maps had been named abandoned, you know? Um, and so it was sort of a place and non-place at the same time. and. And and trying, I remember us sort of trying to deconstruct like how it actually became became named. And I was on a trip driving across the country, and I remember getting to a rest stop in Colorado, called literally called. There's a large sign that says "No Name Rest Stop," just like "No Name." <laughs> and so just even thinking about how did it get the name "No Name," you know, "No yeah. Name," and sort of again like these kind of spaces where where maybe some of those places that kind of accidentally made the map or, you know, also what is is uh, protected by not being on a map. Um, you know, if you think of tourism too, you know, the, the tourism can be incredibly impactful. It can obviously bring a lot of revenue to places that need it, but it also can really be problematic. And so, you know, what do you make sure is on a map or not on a map to protect a place or, or who knows, protect a story, protect a community. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I just, there's, again, I, I think that that question of, of what you don't know from a map and what is, what is, uh, what is, what makes, makes the map, what, you know, what actually like ends up, um, being there as something that's supposed to guide you about a place, right, is is really interesting. I think some of it's obvious and some of it is is that very deep bias that can mean many things. Well, also I'll, some of the obvious biases in maps, I'm thrilled and just in a state of wonder at how my kids are uh, experiencing this right now. I have a sixth grade daughter and an eighth grade son and our, my sixth grader uh, learned about redlining in maps and you know we everyone's been talking about systemic racism for the past couple of years and it's it's really become a teaching point and and I think that that when she learned about those maps it was like the best example she saw concretely of how how this inert inanimate object with no objective could actually be a really powerful tool for uh, discrimination and it kind of blew her mind and then my son uh, this year is learning about gerrymandering districts, and he is completely blown away by it. Um, like our congressional districts here in Indiana, and I mean, most places are amoeba-shaped, depending on who who uh, redraws them to uh, potentially keep whoever's in power in power, or to to do the opposite. Um, mm-hmm. And so, those are it's fun. It's fun to see how the intentionality of mapping is is uh, is a powerful teaching tool for my kids. Yeah, how great uh, those two ex- uh, examples, and uh, you know, uh, I think I don't know 
that we can speak to the population at large about uh, literacy, but just uh, the importance of vis visual literacy to negotiating our world maps and, and um, kind of geographic visualizing are two incredible examples uh, of that. And the two that you, you just uh, uh, described, Stuart, are great examples. And, you know, I always think of, um, you know, so often, not always, but so often maps have this sense of clarity and economy of information, et cetera, and, and that people oftentimes can take this uh, abstract representation and, and glean something from it pretty quickly. And, and, you know, why is that? And that's because 99.99999% of all the information that could have been on it was omitted in order to articulately visualize where the state parks are, the, the borders, where the mountains are, mm -hmm. where the um, uh, extractable resources are, whatever. Um, and so I think that's an interesting point. And I think brings up to that a lot of early mapping was political, right? It was to talk about, if we could bring it back to colonization, right? It was really about who had control over what land and um, where borders were and, um, and were being established and where resources are and were and um, so sort of bring back to even now, and we're talking about, you know, gerrymandering and, and um, this, these district lines that are very clearly a huge political um, force and tool right now. Mm -hmm. Right. So just in, in these like smaller, when we're thinking about the world map as a sort of political tool, but that the even a very small map of your own, you know, county can can be this like deeply um, profoundly political and, and, um, complex, right. Kind of set of information too. Do you think we look at maps differently now with everything that we know about the world? I think compared to, um, you know, humans in distant times, we, we have a, a far, far better, albeit flawed nonetheless, but far better understanding of the world. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I think um, if your world was limited to where you could walk or ride a donkey or what have you, your sense of the world and, and the information about your world would be really different than, um, um, you know, much of what we've been describing. So I think, um, yes, in certain ways. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'd say, I'd say yes too. And I said, on that on that similar note, I think it, it so depends on your relationship to how you move through a place and land and um, your connection to sort of literally physically moving through the world. So if you live in a city versus rural or you're in a community that's deeply tied to the land versus one that is like completely removed from from the connection to land the way you understand and, and read a map it really different now, you know, even in contemporary culture when we have, um, you know, this access through Google Maps and, and our phones, you know, this sort of phone culture of, of high, it's highly reliant. I think we are highly reliant maps now in a way that can be 
very problematic, actually. I had this conversation with my students. Um, I teach at Dartmouth College, and I had a, a, a this session that was so interesting that when I teach photography, but we were talking about orienting ourselves and, and wayfinding. There's a book called Wayfinding that I sometimes teach with, too, and the first chapter of it talks about how we um, and uh, I need to, it's O'Connor's the last name, I should have it off the top of my head, but um, we, the, the, this chapter talks about how we've become increasingly anxious because we no longer use our, our full set of senses to orient ourselves to move through the world because we're so reliant now on, on our phones to tell us where to go. And that mm -hmm. we're actually designed biologically, right, to, to use our full um, kinesphere to move through the world, right? And so there's sort of an irony there that we have access to sort of every single photographic, you know, moment of the, or insert, sorry, section of the planet through Google Maps. So I think our relationship to maps, there's a slightly different way to say this, but our relationship to maps is wildly changed in, and very dramatically in a short time due to that um, shift in our reliance on technology too. I don't know if um, someone who's highly reliant on Google Maps all the time looked at an old paper map and you know, leaving the Mercator map and and what how they might understand that right as just a, sta a still um, static kind of version of the world right and I that makes me like I'm very curious about that um, and we all grew up with that very s static map. Um, and position could position ourselves within it and somehow right so i don't know there are many thoughts in there so it's a little bit rambly but i would dovetail off what christina was saying as far as um like how to how to navigate through through the woods right moss grows on this side of the tree um the wind's coming from here the sun is setting from here the star appears in this part of the sky all of those tactile and environmental cues that very few of us um, can actually do anymore. Mm -hmm. um, a couple years ago when Pokemon Go came out and everyone, not just my kids, but like adults, my mother, uh, everyone was into it mm -hmm. and trying to find these these Pokemon. And I, I, I tried it and barely understood it. I like am over the hill in those regards. Uh, <laughs> my kids were into it. Um, and then my kids also got VR sets for Christmas last year, and um, they took to that very naturally, whereas I was extremely clumsy in it. Uh, this is a roundabout way of saying that all those environmental cues that our ancestors had very uh, acute awareness of, I think now with sensors and predictive technology, that those are our new um, wilderness survival tools so that whatever Pokemon Go was as a game, mm -hmm. will will sensors be able to tell us, oh, uh, in this next half mile, there's a toxic, um, there's some toxic uh, spill that you might want to watch out for. Um, there is someone listed on the, um, you know, cr criminal background checklist that you should probably avoid in the line at the supermarket. Um, like all of these things that are our new navigational tools uh, is exhilarating and also um, kind of terrifying. And I like I, I devoured the Ready Player One and Two books, um, which is very much about that. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
maybe not in my lifetime, but certainly in our kids' lifetime, those all of that integrated tech, I think, will be the new, uh, you know, Boy Scout code. I have to um, think back to some of your earlier comments uh, as well about um, gerrymandering and uh, redlining and overlay that on, on what you were just describing and it, it, it in wonder, you know, who gets to decide what the things are that are helping you negotiate the world through your device and what is being omitted as um, Christina pointed out earlier with uh, whether it's to keep uh, tourists from overrunning or maybe it's to conceal um, uh, nuclear waste sites or you know something else um, so it is interesting um, but it does depend on somebody um, making a set of information available to you and then there may be some parallel to you know the clarity of, of a, a paper map is in part due to everything that's left off I wonder what will be left off yeah, and I, and I, to follow up on that too, the, this idea of who has the power, who makes the map, who makes the, the, these decisions about, um, in Stuart, what you're describing, the information that might be given to tell to help you navigate through through space, right? So, I mean, I think it, yeah, to bring it back to that space of like the, the map designer in whatever way is someone who has a lot of power too, right? There's like the comprehension of whatever they're sh they're showing us, right? And they're not showing us. You know, I wanted to let you you all know that I'm terrible with directions and geography. Um, <laughs> I'm constantly using Google Maps to find my way around. So I might be your test subject. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'll keep keep in touch with you about. <laughs> But I think a lot of people are, you know, because if you haven't, I mean, sometimes it's just innate, like, you know, some people are just not as good as others at orienting or, or map, you know, dealing with maps, et cetera, or need a map or need a map in a different way. But, mm -hmm. um, I do wonder if, if we all had even just like two weeks of training where we, we had to figure out even just where Northeast, West, South are, you know, like really pay attention to where the sun moves and where we are in the world, how much that would change our abilities to, to kind of um, confidently move through the world, I guess, right, without that mm -hmm. guide. We're so dis I would say we in this, you know, very broad way, but, but general Western culture is pretty deeply disconnected. And from, you know, the, all of those cues in the natural world that help navigate, that help us navigate. And, um, there's something pretty profound in, in that disconnection, actually, too. And I personally feel like we, we really need to find our way back to just, a, again, this, this deeper connection with our senses or our tools, right? We've evolved in, um, in a very specific way to be able to navigate through, through the world. So to ignore them and like let those muscles atrophy is... Makes, it makes sense that there's some like sort of deeper anxiety. Our bodies are kind of like, wait, wait you're not using most, you're not using most of us, you know, most yeah, of these, yeah. these tools, right? Yeah, so it's interesting. 
I I forget if I if I read this or maybe I was told this in an interview, but it was about how an indigenous community they understood direction by north, south, east, west, and no matter what direction they were facing, they always knew or they always know which way is north, south, northwest, southwest, and that just keeps coming to mind when, um, you know, we're we're sitting here talking about the atrophy of maybe how we understand directions, our place in the world. Um, you know, we we all kind of have vertigo without our phones. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Vertigo, and I, that I think you're you know to bring in just there's so much indigenous knowledge that we need to be paying attention to again we should have always been paying attention to it to be honest but um you know this this moment that we're in in terms of i'm just going to bring the climate crisis in for a second you know just is is it's um it's incredibly important to to bring in that sort of sensibility of how we connect to place and location both as you know in our singular lives and our smaller um, sort of spheres of, of place and land, but also how we understand ourselves in relationship to the planet, right, and the globe. And what you what you just mentioned too also reminded me, and I, there's something, I think it's in Bali, when you encounter someone, you ask them where they're going, mm-hmm. you say, where are you going? Instead of saying, how, how are you as a greeting, you say, where are you going? And it, it, what's so interesting culturally is that if someone, say from the U.S., a, a, most people, if someone asked you where you're going and you didn't know that person, it would feel very personal. You're like, it's not your business, you know. But, and and then for them, I you know, there's this reversal. If you say how are you, you're like, that's really personal. You don't ask me, you know, you don't ask me how I am, you know. Yeah. But for them, for in 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 this context. Right, this idea of where you're going is the situating of, of the person in in a place, and that that feels it's it's a sort of it's sort of a care of someone to say, like where have you where are you going, where have you been, right? To sort of understand you in in situ, and I thought that was such a beautiful shift to to sort of like, what if you asked everyone where they're going and sort of understood them in a trajectory, you know, in relationship to place. Yeah, that's great, Christina. I'm gonna do that. For the rest of t- today, whenever I see anything. <laughs> okay, see, see what happens. I'll see what they say. <laughs> okay, please do. I love, I love that. Considering how climate change is affecting and will continue to affect the land as we know it, how is it important to have other ways of viewing Earth and the land? Can I ask a little bit what you mean by other way? Just Do you mean just multiple ways of conceptualizing that? Yeah, I think where my mind went, and feel free to take it in any direction, but as as climate change continues to affect the land that we know, things are going to disappear. They're going to change. So then how is it important to have other ways of viewing Earth and the land? Because these maps are going to be obsolete. Well, I'll, I'll chime in first and being the, I don't know, the, the sound focused person, I'll, I'll talk about sound again. Uh, I mean, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring was the, the groundbreaking book. And 
it, it was about what you know what would spring sound like if, if nothing was there to to make these beautiful sounds mm -hmm. uh, and so I think sound as a way of measuring the health or the changing um, conditions in any ecosystem is a really powerful tool because sometimes the visual uh, map or the visual photograph cannot document or express the reality of a place. Um, wh wh one classic example is uh, the uh, renowned soundscape ecologist Bernie Krause has been recording in this grove of forests in California for uh, almost five decades. And uh, a logging company came in and claimed that they would do responsible logging and um, whether or not they did so, the, the before and after photographs of this logged environment look identical. And so, of course, on the brochures and when presenting this back to the uh, commissioning agency, uh, they said, well, look, the forest looks the same. Um, and of course, it didn't look the same, but in the photos, it looks the same. But Bernie's recordings of the sounds of that place in the 1960s and the 1970s are incredibly rich frogs and birds and insects and just all of this stuff and uh, it's virtually silent now and so that is a just one tiny example of how we can monitor the effects on our climate and then the effects on biodiversity and and habitat um, through sound as a as proof that um, that things are changing rapidly um, and and sometimes the picture uh, belies the reality Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll jump in here too because this new piece disturbance is so much about that same thing, Stuart, too. And I saw Bernie Crest speak years ago now at City Arts and Lectures in San Francisco. And one of the things to add there was um, in his talk, he showed this the the sonogram and this sort of score of that that change and so to bring in this sort of sense of like there's another kind of synesthetic like visualization that that also was that stayed with me and actually i think probably had a deep influence on the way i'm thinking about these um this piece where the you know this panamanian ship is i mean this ship in panama is coming through the jungle and you when you look at the recordings afterwards you see this the visual is so obvious of this this um this sort of symphony of sound and you see, you know, the sort of marks of, of all of the different um, tonal ranges of like the howler monkeys and, the, you know, the, the crickets and the frogs and the or birds and all of it. And then the ship comes in and it's just annihilating that. And it's the same thing with, Ber with Bernie Krause's in this talk. He shows us, he plays the, those two um, recordings that you just described. And it was just so profound to hear and watch, right? Like, so you could see the marking. So I think maybe in, in response to your question, Cody, and on, on the same note with uh, that Stuart's bringing in is that, that there are other kinds of mappings too, that these sort of ways to reveal the, the, um, the unseen, you know, impacts, but that are, that are profound and obvious, right? That, and, and again, it kind of does bring us back to our other senses, right? You do know sound is so important to the way we move through the world, although we're hyperly visual now, right? We're so wildly reliant on, on visual information. Um, but sound, if you just, if, if we were in, in, 
in the anatomic chamber or whatever, you know, we were just shut off all of that, that sound, you would go kind of crazy, right? You're, the way you, you also will lose your balance if your ears goes out, you know, it's, it's such a profound space. Um, so, yeah, so I think just bringing in other kinds of mapping and comprehension um, that, that remind us uh, that we do know a lot more than we realize uh, about place and, the, and change and what's happening too is, is really important. Yeah, I, w I would add um, that, you know, both the importance of paying attention to all of our senses, and both of you make that point really well, um, and also paying attention to place and the way it was mapped in whatever form historically in order to compare it to today or what's happening is really critical. Um, I think we, we understand you know, we, we make, we speculate about futures based on, on the relationship of now to the past, right? Mm -hmm. um, so to, to look through multi layers of time, of, of uh, senses, of, of uh, kind of intellectual capacity in terms of how we understand these things, I think will be really critical. Yeah, Dan, that, that idea to making, of sort of making sure we're looking at many facets at one time instead of like the latest map right becomes the site of of a much deeper comprehension right of of change especially because change is happening so fast so i, I love that idea too of bringing in many maps at once right sort of all these different bits of information to help us really stay inside the change right we're sort of staying with the trouble and inside of inside of it as and knowing there's other maps that are coming right because this change we're inside change that's rapid and, and continuing or or maybe another way to to phrase it um is you know the map is live it's it's yes. in real time and um i was thinking of a couple examples um before google when google was just google earth they teamed up with um, some human rights organization to track the genocide in Darfur. And they were able to, through aerial imagery, essentially define it a genocide in ways that they couldn't on the ground because it was too dangerous for reporters or for the UN to, um, to send in people and through aerial imagery could uh, call it a genocide and thus warrant interventions that would not have been able to um, be done without that imagery or even more, more recently in like social justice uh, protests and in Black Lives Matter organizations, uh, people were getting tracked by their cell phones and then counter protesters or police could find them. And so there was this whole almost like almost like strategy video game where then people would uh, fake their locations so that yeah. uh, they could more effectively uh, demonstrate. And so that, you know, talk about a map being drawn in real time. Um, it's just, it's fascinating. So looking toward the future, how do you see maps continuing to influence us or maybe influencing us in new ways? I think that I'm going to just continue beating the, the tech technology drum that um, we are both simultaneously uh, resistant to being tracked and also aware that we're always tracked. So 
you know, the va the vaccine had a, a chip in it that was going to track, you know, make us track. Um, our phones have these 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 chips. So I think that that data and realizing that we are um, we are the product now. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, just the way Facebook has changed its name to Meta Meta, and that we're we're constructing the metaverse. Um, it's uh, it feels like science fiction. It does, yeah. And if I think about it for too long, I need to just go for a walk in the woods. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm yeah. uh, it, 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 it feels um, at the same time as I age, I want to become more open-minded and to, to recognize that um, the examples I used before about uh, protesters hacking the system to further their cause or for uh, genocide to be called out um, in ways that it wasn't able to, uh, those are really exciting to me. And I admit that I, I don't know how to do that, but that this is being done by the next generation of, of young people um, is, is, that encourages me. I also, I'm, I'm actually currently in divinity school for the, the next year and a half. And it's been really interesting. I'm here doing a, a master's in theological studies um, that's tied to my work and, and looking at art as a space of spiritual holding in relationship to science and dialogue with science as a way to, to build more effective climate crisis communication. And um, I think it's an interesting to think about how technology is in, uh, and to follow up Stuart on your thoughts here to uh, how, how reliant we are in technology and how deeply embedded in, in this, this sort of the system, the steps, systemics of what that, that means on so many levels. Um, and, in terms of even, yeah, just being, being tracked, being, so reliant on technology that we kind of need it to move through any day and there's a lot of anxiety i even ask my students when i'm teaching to just not use their phones for a day and they get really overwhelmed and disoriented and we have to talk about detox you know that kind of thing and to get them in their bodies and and so and at, at divinity school i'm finding that the conversations we're having are there's these simultaneous spaces and we're talking about this in the metaverse that that's happening in this sort of Facebook evolution where, where we're kind of climbing inside of this, um, this really very sci-fi feeling kind of escape with each other, that there's also this really deep, deep um, longing for commu direct community in real life, like really being present with each other physically because of COVID too, right? So we've all been isolated. I, I think I, I feel like there's also this just deep um, simultaneous kind of set of desires that are sort of like drawn to technology and the evolution of of kind of where that space can take us and then there's this this really deep kind of um, reaction to that to to find a way to harness it to and there have been conversations too like how to use technology so it's not using us right um, towards these goals that really do have to do with belonging and connection and community and in this because we're inside of a set of crises right now as a global community um, and as a country you know with a lot of things so what's it mean then to to be holding those both of those at the same time this sort of like deep kind of curiosity and like um, uh, 
you know, what's the right word to sort of like um, draw to the technological evolution that we're inside of. And then also this recognition that it's pulled us away from some very deep kind of base needs we have, which include, again, like really being in deep community and and being on and being in the natural world comes up constantly, like go out and connect right to reconnect. So um, it, I, I'm finding that tension really, really ripe and, and rich, but also fascinating and very complicated and very strange. Right. It's just this. We're in the, we are, I do, I agree with Stuart. I feel like we're, we're like way deep inside some sci-fi, sci-fi novel, you know, <laughs> where we'll see where we end up, but it's a weird moment, you know, it's a crazy time. How about you, Dan? What was the question? <laughs> it's okay. Um, looking toward the future, <clears throat> how do you see maps continuing to influence us or influencing us in new ways? Yeah, that's, that's a, uh, a big, broad question. Um, I'm not sure um, of what the answer is. I mean, I, I agree uh, with uh, the very good uh, thoughts of uh, Stuart and Christina. Um, they will continue to grow and evolve. And I think, you know, we owe it to ourselves to learn how to make use of uh, our ourselves, you know, our human tools and our technological tools to um, negotiate the world um you know in a in a an honest and in you know good way um as opposed to not paying any attention to either of them or you know either or and and being being used you know being the uh um the product if you will mm -hmm. but you know that's a very broad answer but i i think that it's it, i i don't really know how to speculate um more clearly i could i could think of aspirationally how we might and i can also think diabolically how we might um let's go with the former well perfect you know that does it for my questions dan stewart and christina um do you have anything else you'd like to add i was just thinking um we were talking about covid and i bet people have looked at maps more in the last 18 months for new reasons than ever before. I mean, there were times where we wouldn't even go to a, a different county because they were a different color of red than, than we were. I mean, so bizarre. And then, and then to think about us as contributors to the map, every time someone took a COVID test, and was negative or took one and was positive or uh, was admitted to the hospital or got a vaccine, we, we, we contribute this data to this thing. So in the future, what, you know, what can we substitute for COVID in that map? Like, could we substitute happiness or um, grief or other sorts of psychological um, data that where the map could be more more useful than just trying to avoid a virus mm -hmm. um and that's that's really interesting to me those are great great points uh, uh Stuart, I, I did a a map uh, several years ago that by state ranked um the states by happiest um, and I, I paired it with most taxed just to see what the corollary was um someone had to come up with the data 
to represent, you know, to, and to determine what happiness was. So, um, sort of interesting. Uh, once again, back to I suppose a bias, uh, but yeah, good good point. Um, if if we have a populace paying attention to this kind of information, how great it would be if if we could channel that towards positive and constructive things that represent us, and then track our what betterment um our our, our efforts um that'd be wonderful mm -hmm. yeah i love the i love this idea of just thinking of the, the map as a tool as a space of um shifting just shifting your goals maybe to an energy is right so in the same way that both Stuart and Dan are describing, like what's it mean then to sort of posit the, the, the map as a tool, as an individual or a collective to direct our energies towards betterment, right? So it's a beautiful space, like an empty map that could become many, many things. Um, you know, all three of us obviously do, or use it and the imaginings of the map as a, as a tool too. And, I wonder if it could be more of a space for for many people to to just sort of dream with and imagine with you know a way a way to move forward that's really generative and positive and connective and focuses on these things like happiness and and uh, and just connection too in this complex time. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. <laughs>